This is how to get the most out of your Bible. And the reason that those one-page sheets were just distributed is because I want you to see where how to get the most out of your Bible fits into the overall curriculum. So if you'll take a look at that that sheet. There's a there's a pocket in your notebook. So you can put it in. So if you all have if you all have that and you see about midway down in the center there where it says learn in red, to the right of that it says how to get the most out of your Bible. So in our spiritual growth process that we've established at CBC, we encourage everybody who's willing to go through an intentional and sequential set of classes in order to get some foundational knowledge that you can build upon in your Christian walk. So we've ordered these classes this way to ensure that in four years you get these foundational issues uh, uh, taught to you. Now, what you get in those four years is, in my experience, things that people who have been Christians for a lot of years very often never put together in 20 years or 25 years. So what we've tried to do is condense what you really need to know about the gospel, about the Bible, about the Christian walk into these four years. Now, where are the four years on this chart? Here's where they are. Again, if you look at Learn there, the class that you're in is how to get the most out of your Bible. And if you remain in this class, we'll be together then through the first Wednesday in May. So we will go through the end of the year uh, in early December Second Wednesday of December will be our last meeting for this semester, and then we'll start up again in January, and we'll just continue where we left off in the notebook that most of you have in front of you. And that will go through, as I said, the first week of first week of May. So this class takes one calendar year, one academic year, for us to finish. We don't meet in the summertime. And so these only meet, these classes only meet, thank you, they only meet uh, September... Through, through the first week of May. So that takes one academic year. And then if you look at the next box underneath that, it says Discovery, and then it has those four Roman numerals, and that's Discovery 1 through 4. And Discovery is a series, then, that uh, has four books associated with it. And each of those books takes one semester, and each academic year is two semesters. So that means if this thing is four semesters, it's two academic years to take Discovery. So the one you're in now takes one year. Discovery takes two years. And then the one below that is Master Plan for Life. And that is a a systematic theology for regular people is what I call it. And that takes one year to get through. So that's where the four years come from. The how to get the most out of your Bible, the class you're in now, one year. Discovery series takes two years, and then Master Plan for Life takes a year. total of four years for you to get through those. And then you finish the foundational classes. And then the box at the very bottom says Community Institute Electives. That means after you've completed those foundational classes, then we continue to offer courses for you to continue to grow in your knowledge of God's Word. Uh, Right behind that wall in the adjacent class is a class on the Book of Acts. And those, that's populated entirely or almost entirely by people who have gone through these four years. 
So they've sort of graduated through these four years, and now they're liberated to take whatever we're offering. Okay. Now, I say almost entirely, there may have been some people who absconded and they just or lied about at registration what they've actually taken. So, you know, sometimes that happens. People go to registration and they say, who's teaching, like, how to get the most out of your Bible? And somebody says, Brown. And they say, I already took that. Okay. So that's between them and the Lord. All right. So most of the people over there, though, have already taken all all four years. And after you've taken all four years, then that's uh, what we offer for you as well. So uh, four years of foundational classes. Now, those boxes that are above that, you see baptism, membership, newcomers, orientation, growth partners. Uh, baptism membership is probably self-explanatory. Growth partners is something that I explain in the newcomer's orientation. The newcomer's orientation is uh, something that some of you are familiar with because you've already taken it. If you've never taken it, then that means you're a newcomer. And our next newcomer's orientation is actually not until January, January 3rd. So the first four Sundays of January we will have our next four-week newcomers orientation. So if you've never taken that, I encourage you to be here for those four Sundays so that you can learn more about our church, our philosophy, where we've come from, where we're going, and how this stuff fits into the way we've structured the ministry here, okay? So that's the class you're in, how to get the most out of your Bible. If that's not the class you thought you were supposed to be in, or after I've just given you that much, if that's not the class you want to be in, or... Now that you know that I'm teaching it, if you want to decide I've already taken it, then now's your time to, to exit. Phyllis, you had a question? Well, they, they reassigned They reassigned you. I was supposed you. to go to the ACT class, but uh, Dr. Combs, but uh, they said that if I hadn't taken this one yet. That's, that's, and that's what I was just explaining, that this is the first class, thank you in that, in our... So, now, we say have to. You don't have to. I thought I came in on the end of this do you want the beginning of it? No, that's okay. All right, I'm just saying. But you don't have to, all right? So the way we do it is, that's the way it is on the uh, on our on our process. And we encourage people to follow that as best you can. But obviously, if people don't want to, or they've already had this kind of stuff, seriously, then that's okay. There are people who do skip through it. And that's all, that's all right with us. But we're just letting you know that that's the process. Here's where how to get the most out of your Bible fits into it. So Now, some of you didn't get notes for tonight because we ran out of notebooks. So we have notes for tonight's lesson here. So let me pass those out to those of you who didn't get them. Diane, and then we'll get you next week. We'll get Hal Eula. You didn't get one either? Okay. Okay. And... For those of you that didn't get a notebook, we will get you a full notebook next week. And Phyllis, you need one? Anybody else? So those notes that the handful of you uh, just received that didn't get a notebook, 
Sorry we didn't have enough full notebooks, but you're not going to miss anything because we're not going through the full notebook tonight. Uh, just the first few pages. You have those first few pages in front of you, and then next week uh, you can get uh, the full notebook, okay? So if you'll take a look then at page one in your notes under section one. So you've got the first tab, and after that first tab, you have section one, survey of the Bible. So what does a survey of the Bible involve? How to get the most out of your Bible has three major sections. Survey of the Bible, how to interpret the Bible, and then how to apply the Bible. Those are the three things we're going to look at. On the front cover of your notebook, it says that. It says how to get the most out of your Bible, and then it says sections 1, 2, and 3, or parts 1, 2, and 3, survey, how to inter- interpreting the Bible, applying the Bible. So in our year together, those are the three major things we're going to look at. But at least half of our time is going to be on the first of those three. An overview, a survey of the of the Bible. So what is then a, a survey course? And it's good for you to know what that is, especially since it's going to cover at least half of our time together. You see in that next paragraph, it covers matters such as language and history and dating and authorship. So we are going to survey uh, the 66 books of the Bible, uh, not in not in individual depth, obviously, because of the time that we have. Uh, we have individual classes to go in depth in each book, like the book of Acts is being taught right now. But we'll give you an overview of how the Bible is put together, when the various books of the Bible came into uh, the canon of the Bible, when they were written, that's what we mean by the history, who wrote them, authorship, and uh, and uh, some of the issues relating to the language behind the, the books of the Bible as well. And in addition to that, we'll provide some infor- information regarding the content and the teaching of, of Scripture. So by the time you're done with that survey, we want you to know how the Bible is put together, what its central message is, and how that message carries through from, from beginning to end. So by the time we're finished, probably in January, maybe early February, you'll have a good idea of the storyline of of the Bible, right? So that's what we mean by a survey course, and the first section of this class is a survey of the Bible. Now, why should you care about that? And that's the next section in your note there, uh, on your page there. Why should we care to put the time and effort into gaining an overview of the Bible's message? Well, stated simply, the answer is because God cared to produce and to preserve it for us. Since God himself has seen fit to provide scripture to us, it's incumbent on us to do all we can to ascertain its message and to live by it. So the fact that you're here and the fact that you're sitting in a class um, with the title, How to Get the Most Out of Your Bible, suggests to me that you have at least some interest in fulfilling that. That you know that the Bible is an important book. It's important because God gave it. And because God gave it, therefore, it should be important to us to know what it contains and then how it is we can apply it to our lives. So that's why we should take time to know the Bible's message. God took time to give it to us. And if God took time to give it to us, then uh, in return, we should have a desire to, to know what it says and to live by it. So how has God done that? How has God given us, then, this message in the Bible 
that we should care about and care enough to apply to our lives. And that's what the middle of page one is about. Now, as we go through this this course, there are going to be some things for some of you that you've heard, some things for some of you that you've heard maybe even in some of the classes that we offer in Community Institute, what we're doing tonight. Uh, I know some of you were in my class last year, Master Plan for Life, and now you're back around to how to get the most out of your Bible. The reason is because you started coming to our church uh, when we were offering Master Plan for Life, and so now you're coming around to take the, the first class. That's, uh, that's not a problem. They don't, they don't have to be taken in that particular sequence. If they can be, then that's good, but, but they don't have to be. But some of you were in the class last year. Some of the things I'm going to say about uh, how God gave the Bible to us, we covered in, in that class. Uh, so if you were in the class last year, forgive me for that. But we noted uh, then and now that Scripture has been inspired by God. So how did God give us the Bible? He inspired it. And we use the word inspired for this reason. You see 2 Timothy 3.16. All scripture is God-breathed. Now, that line, all scripture is God-breathed, is a translation of that verse, 2 Timothy 3.16, in the NIV, the New International Version. And that's the version of the Bible that I preach from. That's the version of the Bible that we teach from here. It's not the only uh, good translation of the Bible. We'll see that later in the course as well, something about good translations. Uh, But it's one of many good translations of, of the Bible and one we recommend. And that's the way the New International Version translates that verse. All scriptures God breathed. But where does this idea of Scripture being inspired come from? And that comes from the King James Version translation of that same verse. And you see there we have the King James translation. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. And that is why then you'll hear preachers and teachers say, as we say in these notes, that the Bible, Scripture, has been inspired. Because it goes back to the way the King James Version translated that verse with the word inspiration. Now, why does the NIV say God breathed it and the King James say God inspired it, that it's been inspired? Why? Here's why. Because the the Greek word that is behind the word inspiration in the King James and behind uh, the words God breathed in the NIV, the Greek word that's translated that way is this theonoustos so theos is a Greek word the Greek word for God T-H-E-O-S is the way it's transliterated into English T-H-E-O-S so someone who's an atheist is someone who does not believe in God an atheist no God so theos is the Greek word for God And then noustos is the Greek word for a spirit or breath or wind. We get our English word pneumonia from it. You have a breathing problem if you have pneumonia, so it's related to breath, noustos. And, yeah, I will. Thank you. So that's P-N-E-A-U. S-T-O-S P-N-E-A-U 
P-N-E-U-S-T-O-S. P-N-E-U-S-T-O-S. Yes, thank you. P-N-E-U-S-T-O-S. Say what? Neustos. Okay. So the two words are theos and then neustos. And neustos is spelled that way. P-N-E-U-S-T-O-S. Okay? Neustos. Then you put those two together. Um, T-H-E-O and then neustos. Theod, neustos. God breathed. So we get we get our word pneumonia from that, which is a breathing problem. Um, there are certain kinds of vehicles, I think large vehicles, but I'm not a mechanic, that have certain kinds of brakes instead of having uh, fluid brakes, you know, where you've got brake fluid that you put in it, and if you lose your brake fluid, you lose your brakes, if all the brake fluid leaks out. But there are um, air brakes or pneumatic brakes. Yes. And so they're called, and that's on larger vehicles, is that right? Semi. Thank you. All right. So pneumatic, again, has to do with air or breath or, or spirit. So that's why now, then the NIV translates that as God breathe, because the word is God, theos, and neustos, breath. And so that's a really a literal translation. So where did the King James get inspiration? Well, you know, even in English, we uh, another word for breath or breathing is to spirate. So if you've got a breathing problem, yeah, pneumonia is one way, one type of a breathing problem. But we might say you have a respiratory, a respiratory. So spirating is breathing. So if you're spirating, that's a good thing. Okay? And if you're expirating, <laughs> right? So that's not a good thing. Now, so that's that's why. That's another English word that we still use for breathing, spirating. So expir, you know, expiring means someone died. They're no longer breathing. But the difficulty is that the King James used the word inspiration. And so what that means is that many people think that the emphasis of 2 Timothy 3.16 is on who the Bible was breathed into, that Paul was inspired as a writer of Scripture, or Moses was inspired, or David was inspired. Because, again, it says it's given by inspiration. So that's, that's, that's in-breathing, inspirating, right? Now, it's true that God used Paul. And it's true that God used Moses. And it's true that God used David. But the emphasis of 2 Timothy 3.16 is not on to whom the Bible was given, but rather from whom the Bible came. It came from God. It is breathed out by God. So, I mean, if you wanted to use, the King James translators wanted to use spirate, then they, it would have been better if they said given by expiration of God, but because it's given by the breathing out of God. And then other passages of Scripture then deal with to whom it was given. But this passage is about from whom it came, namely God. Scripture has been inspired by God. 
But because the King James is so widely used, and so many of us memorized our verses from the King James, we still say, and the literature still says, and theology books all say, the Bible is inspired. That comes from 2 Timothy 3.16 and the King James translation. But there are a number of passages in the Bible about the Bible that speak of God giving the Bible to us. There are passages in the first part of your Bible, the Old Testament. So we have there for you Old Testament passages on inspiration. The Bible says in Exodus 24, for example, Moses wrote down everything that the Lord had said. So Moses wrote down what the Lord had said, and thankfully, as we're going to see, God preserved what Moses wrote down so that we can have it even in our day, 3,500 years 3,500 years after Moses did that. And then you have Deuteronomy 27. Moses is told, write very clearly all the words of this law on these stones that you have set up. And then again, Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah, write it on a tablet for them, inscribe it on a scroll, that for the days to come it may be an everlasting witness. And then to the prophet Jeremiah, this is what the Lord the God of Israel says, write in a book all the words I have spoken to you. Now you notice in all of those, it's right. It's writing. So back to 2 Timothy 3.16, the Bible has come from, from God. It's breathed out by God. He's the source of the Bible. But notice what it's called. It's called Scripture, all Scripture. And the Greek word for Scripture is this. Graphe. And if you were to transliterate that, we won't be doing Greek words all semester, okay? But, <laughs> but graphe is G R A P H E. G R A P H E. Pronounced graphe. But we get we get things like graphite or graffiti from it. So it has to do with writing. Yes. So all the writing the scriptures, the sacred writings have been breathed out by God. And God puts a premium, as you can see from these passages from the Old Testament, the first part of your Bible. God puts a premium on this idea of what he says being written down. Now why? In some of these passages he tells us very directly that one of the reasons he wants it written down is so that for ages to come it will be it will be preserved. So God God has it written so that it's accurate and so that it's preserved for posterity. So there's Old Testament passages on that. Then you have New Testament passages on it. 2 Timothy 3.16, bottom of page 1, Hebrews chapter 1. God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets at many times and in various ways. So do you believe that it was the Holy Spirit that was so the question that uh, Julie is asking is uh, do you believe it's the Holy Spirit then telling them to write down what they did right who's telling them what to write yeah write very clearly all of the words write it on a tab yeah. do this do that yeah. who's telling them to do that <laughs> so in the some of the Old Testament passages that we quoted like to uh, Moses write these on a tablet Who's telling Moses to do that? Is that the Holy Spirit? If you go to that passage back in Deuteronomy, it's it's God directly speaking. So that's direct address from God. And God's saying, do this. 
But most of the Bible came to us not by direct address from God, God saying, in effect, take a letter, be a secretary. That's not, that is not the way the Bible came to us. The Bible did not come to us through what's sometimes called mechanical dictation. That God dictated and then the human author mechanically wrote down what God was dictating. It's a, it's a much more organic and fluid process than that. That involves, as we're going to see in a minute, that involves the personality of the human author, that involves that individual's background, that involves the way they speak, so they have different language. Think about this for a minute. If all of it were God saying, take a letter, then it, then it follows that it would all sound the same. But you have 66 books in your Bible written by 40 different authors. And those 40 different authors all have different styles. And those different styles all show up in the books that they wrote. So that's why I say it's not directly God saying this, now write this down. Now sometimes it is. Sometimes you'll find in the Bible God directly addressing someone and saying, do this. But most of the time, it's a circumstantial issue that's happening that the individual is writing about and God is overseeing that process. So it's not God dictating. The better word is God overseeing the process of what they wrote. And I'll give you a full definition of inspiration that has that idea of God superintending the process in just a second. Yes. Did you have something else? Oh, I thought you had your hand up. Sorry. No. <laughs> okay. All right. Top of page two then. First Peter chapter 1 says this. The prophets spoke of the grace that was to come to you, and they searched intently, and with the greatest care, trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. So here is the way most of the prophets wrote. And this is the way most of the writers of Scripture did their work. That is, the Spirit is guiding this process and ensuring that what they wrote is precisely what he wanted what he wanted written. And here's a New Testament passage referring to the Old Testament prophets and how it is that they wrote, but then they pondered and they studied and they wondered, what are the time and circumstances? How is all this going to come together? Now, let me give you an example of why they had to do that. Um, if you're Isaiah, Isaiah in 700, 700s B.C., 8th century before Christ. And here's Peter writing in the 1st century. So he's writing 800 years after Isaiah. And he has the prophecies, the writings of Isaiah... 66 chapters in the book that we call Isaiah. And in those 66 chapters, Isaiah says stuff like this. In Isaiah chapter 11, Isaiah 11, if you read Isaiah 11, you'll find Isaiah talking about how the Lord is going to come and destroy his enemies. The Lord's a warrior. He's the king. He's going to break, he's going to break the weapons of all of those who oppose him. And when he comes, when, when the chosen one, the appointed one, the Messiah comes, this is what he's going to do. 
Okay. And then you go to Isaiah 53. That's Isaiah 11. But then Isaiah 53. Now, many of you are familiar with Isaiah 53, which is a prediction of the Messiah, but the suffering of the Messiah. And that's the one we quote very often at Christmas and at, and at Easter. He was a man of sorrows and, and acquainted with, with grief. And God has placed upon him the iniquity of all of us. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, right? And this is the suffering of this one who would come. So, you got Isaiah 11. He's this conquering warrior. You got Isaiah 53. He's suffering and dying. And then you got Isaiah 61. Isaiah 61. Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2. In Isaiah 61 and verse 1, Isaiah says things like, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me. Verse 1. And he has appointed me to preach good news to the captives, to set free those who are in prison, and goes on about all of these things that the Messiah is going to do. And then it says to proclaim in verse 2, the year of the Lord's favor. And then the next part of verse 2 says, and the day of vengeance of our God. All right. So that's Isaiah, you know, just three chapters. Chapter 11, conquering warrior, destroy your enemies. Chapter 53, suffering and dying. Chapter 61, verses 1 and 2, I'm going to preach this good news. And I'm going to preach the year of the Lord's favor, but also the day of vengeance of our God. All right. And you're somebody... You know, for centuries, you're trying to figure out when is all that going to happen. And then Jesus comes. And you've been reading the Old Testament scriptures all your life. And you've been waiting for this one to come. And now he comes, and you favor Isaiah 11. Okay, you're here. Kill him. Kill the Romans. Right? And isn't that what you find when Jesus comes? It's set up the kingdom. Kill them. That's what they're that's what they're expecting. But wait a minute, you got this other part. You got Isaiah 53? And the suffering and the dying. And how does that how does that fit together? And then you got Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2. And so here's what Jesus does. In Luke chapter 4, Luke chapter 4, Jesus goes into the synagogue. And Jesus asks for the scroll of the prophet Isaiah. And the Bible tells us in Luke chapter 4 that Jesus unrolled the scroll and found the place where it is written. And then Luke chapter 4 records him reading, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, and he has appointed me to preach good news to the captives, and so on. And to declare the year of the the year of the Lord's favor. And remember that last phrase I gave you? And the day of vengeance of our God? You guys remember that? Jesus stops before that. He doesn't read that. He stops reading right in the middle of what would be our verse two of Isaiah sixty one. 
right smack dab in the middle. And then he says these incredible words. Today, this is fulfilled in your hearing. Those people are being told by Jesus, I'm the one who was promised here. But do you know why he didn't read all the way through? Because Jesus knew he was coming twice. The first time, he's going to do Isaiah 53. Suffer and die. The first time, he's going to do the first part of Isaiah 61, verses 1 and not 2, 2a. The first part of verse 2. And it's not until the second time that he's going to do Isaiah 11, crush his enemies. And then he's going to do that second part of verse 2 in Isaiah 61 and verse 2. It's not until he comes. But, but these guys, in the first part of the Bible, they don't know about these two comings. Right? You don't learn about the two comings until the first coming. So they see all of this, and it looks like it's all going to happen when he comes. But how's all that going to happen? How's he going to suffer and die? And how's he going to be the conquering king? And the answer doesn't come until the New Testament. This isn't going to happen in one coming. It's going to happen in two. Now, top of H2 again. With all of that, Let's read 1 Peter 1 again. The prophets spoke of the grace that was to come and they searched intently and with the greatest care trying to find out the time and the circumstances. They're trying to find out how this all fits together. That the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted and notice these two categories, the sufferings and the glories. I mean, you could write next to the sufferings, Isaiah 53. And you could write next to the glories, Isaiah 11. And you could write next to the sufferings, Isaiah 61, verses 1 through 2a. And next to the glories, Isaiah 61, verse 2b. And you could see that throughout the first part of your Bible. And that's why these guys are searching and going, how's this all going to fit together? Now, I just want to say this and move on. It wasn't that the guys who wrote this in the Old Testament, Isaiah... It was not that they didn't understand what they wrote. They understood what they wrote. What they're trying to figure out is how what they wrote is going to come to pass. So it wasn't that the Spirit is is operating on them and they're just mindlessly writing things that they don't understand. They understand what they wrote. They understand that this one who's going to come is going to suffer and die, Isaiah 53. They understand, Isaiah 11, that he's going to conquer his enemies. They understand that. They just don't understand the time and the circumstances, how it's all going to fit together. And it's Jesus who comes and says, it's going to be in two comings. And even in his quotation of Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2, he breaks it off, part of it applying to the first coming, part of it applying to the second. All right, and then you have 2 Peter one twenty one. Prophecy never had its origin in the will of man. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So this starts to get to Julie's question about who is it that's telling them these things? It's the Holy Spirit, and it is certainly the Holy Spirit. Very directly said to be involved in this process 
of the giving of, of Scripture. But the question is, how was the Holy Spirit involved in, in this process? And as I said earlier, it's not mechanically dictating it. It's, notice the words here, carried along. And the word that's translated carried along there is a word that was used in New Testament times of a boat, a ship that would be borne along, carried along by the current of the water. And so the current takes the ship where it's supposed to go. And here, that's being used of the Spirit now. Guiding the individual to what he's supposed to write. He doesn't do that mechanically. He does that more in a more fluid, organic way, using their personality, using their particular background and experiences and current circumstances to produce precisely what God wanted written. So it's the Holy Spirit behind the whole process, including the choosing of who these guys were going to be. I said you've got 66 books, 40 different authors. How do you get to be an author of Scripture? Where's the job application for that? But it's God providentially working in the circumstances of that individual for that person to have precisely the experiences that are necessary for him to, at a point in time, put pen to parchment, or depending on different materials, depending on when they were writing, so that what they write is precisely what God wants. So God is overseeing the whole process. Now get this, before they're ever born. Jeremiah chapter 1 and verse 5. Jeremiah 1.5. Jeremiah 1.5, God says to Jeremiah, before you were born, I appointed you to be a prophet, to speak for me. So God has, guys and gals, God's got it all figured out, okay? He's got it all figured out. He, he had it all figured out for you before you were born. The Bible says that. The psalmist says that. All the days appointed for me were recorded in your book before one of them came to be. And so God did that with these 40 authors. They were precisely the people he wanted at the time he wanted with the background that he wanted to produce what he wanted. Now that allows us then to give a definition of inspiration. And this is a definition stolen from Charles Ryrie. Inspiration is God's superintending of human authors so that using their own individual personalities they composed and recorded without error in the words of the original autographs his revelation to man that's a mouthful but that covers all the bases okay it eliminates the mechanical dictation idea because it's using their individual personalities um, it also eliminates things like saying there's only one English translation of the Bible that's inspired by God. Anybody ever heard somebody say that? There are people who say that only, and in fact this is the only version I know of that, about which this is said, the King James version of the Bible is the only version of the Bible that's inspired by God. It's not true. As a matter of fact, 
There's a sense in which God has not inspired any English translation of the Bible. What was inspired were the Hebrew manuscripts in the Old Testament and the Greek manuscripts in the New Testament. The original writings, and that's why this definition says, in the words of the, you see that, original autographs. So now what we have are copies of that, and we have then a translation of those copies from one language, Hebrew, in the Old Testament, Greek in the New Testament, into our language, into English. So, is it true then and accurate to say that your Bible's inspired? The answer is yes. But it's inspired in a derivative sense. The original writings of a Paul, of an Isaiah, of a David, those were inspired directly and originally. But now all translations and copies derive inspiration by being accurate representations of what was originally given. So it's inaccurate and very dangerous for someone to say there's one English translation of the Bible alone that is that is the Word of God. Okay? Yeah. Yes? So I'm right in, in saying, am I right in saying that back then in the Old Testament too, they didn't even know of a Holy Spirit that it was the Holy Spirit guiding me to write these words or anything because the Holy Spirit wasn't given to them until the New Testament. Okay, so Julie's question is, you know, did they even know about the Holy Spirit, let alone, you know, in the Old Testament especially, first part of your Bible? And uh, the answer is yes. They They knew certainly about the activity of the Spirit of God. How do I know this? You know, the very first book of your Bible, Genesis 1, verse 2, second verse in the entire Bible, introduces you to the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. So the opening verses of the Bible, you know, you got in Psalm uh, 51, you've got David saying, take not, remove not your Holy Spirit from me. So they were aware of the Holy Spirit. Now, But when they wrote, they were often writing just about stuff that was happening. And they're reacting to stuff that's happening. And they don't consciously know what the Holy Spirit's doing, just like you don't. And I don't know what the Holy Spirit's doing. What I know is that the Holy Spirit's at work all the time. But precisely what the Holy Spirit's doing, I don't know. What What I do is just... And you're supposed to do is we're we're to obey, and and in the circumstances God places us, and that's what you would find the prophets doing very often. Okay? So sometimes they would declare very directly, "This is what the sovereign Lord says." Other times they were simply reacting as spokesmen for God to what was happening. So they were aware of the Holy Spirit. Yeah, you're welcome. Now, somebody had a question over here. I just want to know, again, what the languages were back then. Yeah, they are uh, Hebrew for the Old Testament and Greek for the New Testament. And then you've got a few verses of your Old Testament, 268 to be exact. How do I know this? Because it's on a subsequent page in your notes. (laughs) But 268 of them are in something called Aramaic. But it's really Hebrew and Greek and a tiny bit in Aramaic. So Scripture is... Inspired. That's what we mean by inspired. 
Now, page two, scripture is inerrant. That means no errors, without error. And we say there that inerrancy is a corollary of inspiration. That is, if it came from God, that it cannot be an error. So if the first thing we just talked about is true, that Scripture is inspired, then the second thing has to be true, that it can't have error. Because otherwise, that's a reflection on the character of God. So to say it has error, you have to say it didn't come from God. And in fact, that's what some say. It has errors, but the reason it has errors is because this is a man-made, this is a man-made document. Mm-hmm. Now, it involves human humans, clearly. God used the human authors. He employed the means of human agency to produce it. But God superintended their work so that what they wrote is exactly what he wanted written. And God cannot lie. You see Numbers 23 there. God is not a man that he should lie. Titus verse, chapter 1 and verse 2, very directly, God does not lie. So the Bible has no errors. There are alleged errors in the Bible. But those alleged errors are all apparent but not real. Uh, every supposed error that I've ever been confronted with in the Bible uh, turns out, on further investigation, not to be an error at all but rather an error in understanding on the part of the person making the claim. And you have things like, you know, what I was dealing with just this past Sunday, briefly. You have Cain getting married. Well, okay, there's an error in the Bible, right? Clearly this thing's made up. Because you've only got a handful of human beings, and now all of a sudden a wife shows up. Okay, so where does wife come from? So you had to have other people... You know, so I briefly gave an explanation. And this explanation has been given a zillion times. <laughs> but skeptics still say that kind of stuff. Okay? So you know, skeptics are very creative in looking for supposed errors, but that's exactly what they are, supposed and alleged, but not real. All right, so Scripture is inspired. It's without error. Thirdly, middle of the page, it is infallible. Infallible. <clears throat> that is, if you wanted to write next to that, Excuse me. It has full authority. The scriptures have full authority. You see, something could. Sometimes we look at these phrase terms like inerrant, inerrant, and infallible. We use them as if they're synonyms. They're not exactly because something could be recorded without error, but still have no authority over you. Okay. So I, mean, I could record. I could record a letter. Sounding very haughty, addressed to you, saying, I hereby demand that you cease and desist. All right? That's legal terminology. Cease and desist. Falling asleep in my class. That would be you. Okay, no. Falling asleep in class. Or saying to someone else, that would be about you in my class. You must cease and desist, right? Now, I can be, now, everything I just said there may have no errors in it, right? But that's not the same thing as saying I've got any authority to tell you anything. But the Bible is both. It is without error, 
but it has full authority. What it says has no errors, but since it came from God, it has full authority. It must be abided by. It must be submitted to. It must be obeyed. That's what we mean by infallible. And then, fourthly, Scripture is preserved. Preserved. So remember all those passages in the Old Testament. God wants it written down. One of the reasons it's going to be written down is to be preserved. So you have Matthew 5.18, speaking of the smallest letter, the least stroke of a pen, not disappearing from the law until everything is accomplished. That's the NIV. The King James Version says, not one jot or one tittle shall pass from the law until all be fulfilled. So why do you have that? Why do you have the NIV saying, smallest letter, least stroke of a pen? And you got the King James saying, one jot or one tittle. Why is, why is that? And, and here's why. Well, it's uh, this. Well, it's a different time, yeah. You know, the King James, the first first time the King James was translated, 1611. The only reason I'm saying it that way, kind of 1611, is because a lot of people who believe the King James Bible is the only Bible say, I believe in the KJV 1611. But here's the thing. If you've got a 1611 King James in front of you, you can't read it. I'm telling you, you can't read it. It's old English that you can't read. It's not Middle English, it's Old English. And it's certainly not Modern English. So the NIV, one of the reasons we use the NIV is because it's written in Modern English. Um, but So it does have to do a bit with time period. <clears throat> but here's specifically why the King James uses jot and, and tittle. Because in uh, Hebrew, you have two letters that look very similar when they're written. You've got the R sound, which is called a resh, and it looks like that. So that's a resh, an R in Hebrew. But if you were writing a D in Hebrew, um, the D is written this way. It's called a dalet, and it's written like that. So that's the that's a D, the letter D. Now notice, they're like right, you know, 90 degree angles are, they look pretty similar. But the only difference is that thing. And that thing is called a tittle. So that's what Jesus is talking about. But in modern English, nobody knows what a tittle is. That's why I get paid to explain <laughs> what it is. But in the NIV, it just says the least stroke of a pen. <clears throat> You know, not just, you know, going too far with the line. With a tittle. But then it also says not a jot, and the and the NIV says not the smallest letter. Well what's that about? Well, the Y sound in Hebrew looks just like a, a comma. That is a yod. And it is the smallest letter in the Hebrew alphabet. And anglicized to jot. Jesus is referring to a Hebrew yod, jot. And that's why then the NIV says not the smallest letter. This is the smallest letter of the, the Hebrew alphabet. 
Jesus says here as well, in my remaining two minutes, we'll start this and then we'll finish next week. But you see Luke chapter 24 there. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me, says Jesus, in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. Then he opened their minds so that they could understand the scriptures. Now notice the word scriptures there. Remember later, 2 Timothy 3.16, what's God breathed? All scripture. So this is a technical term used in, in the Bible, scripture, graphe, to refer to the sacred writings. And what comprises the sacred writings? The law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. Now, let me tell you this, and we'll be done. But remember, the Bible that they had at the time Jesus says this, what Bible do they have? They don't have the New Testament. In fact, this is, this is from Luke. And the book of Luke hasn't been written at the time Jesus speaks these words. So they don't have Luke yet. They've got the Old Testament. They've got the first part of your Bible. And Jesus is saying all the things written about me centuries before in these three places, the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And then he opens their minds to the scriptures. Now, why those three categories? Here's why. Because in the Jewish Old Testament, they categorize the same 39 books that you have in your Old Testament. They categorize those in three sections. The law, the prophets, and, and it's sometimes called the writings. Sometimes instead of the writings it says Psalms because Psalms is the first and largest book in the section called the writings. Law, prophets, writings. Now, I have a Hebrew Bible. Next week I'll bring it in to prove it, prove it to you. And on the cover, it has three Hebrew words. And going from right to left, yikes. That's how you read Hebrew. From right to left, not left to right. But anyway, going from right to left, it says Torah, which means law. And then Nabi'im, don't worry about it. <laughs> which means prophets. And then ketubim, which means the writings. On the cover, it says the law, the prophets, and the writings. And within those covers are contained the same 39 books that you have in your Old Testament that they put into those three categories. Now, Jesus is referring to those three categories, and he is saying now those then books that are under those three categories comprise, at least to that point, the scriptures, the sacred writings. So the Old Testament had been preserved up until the time of Jesus 2,000 years ago. And then we'll see next week how the New Testament was preserved as well. Okay? Yes, one question and then we'll leave. I have, um, in regards to um, distributors, when it comes to the NIV or other um, versions, doesn't 
that I had a class where we was required to do memory verses and we got tested on it. And all of us had a different NLT or a different yeah. NIP. Yeah. And um and we would get marked fail if it wasn't the one that the person was looking at. Doesn't really matter. Yeah, so Eula's question is, you know, does it matter which version I'm using? Do I have to use one authorized by you or somebody? And the answer is this. It matters that you have one that is accurate. There are translations that are more and less accurate. The NIV we use here because it's an accurate translation of the Hebrew and Greek manuscripts. But there are some that are less accurate. Um, there are some that are not even translations. They're paraphrases. So it matters that you have something that accurately represents, right? So I think we would all agree with that. So that's first. You want one that accurately represents what God wrote. And then the, only, the other issue then is a practical issue. One of the reasons we let people know we use the NIV here is if I'm preaching and I read a verse, I want them to be able to look at the same thing. So when our guys distribute Bibles, they're handing out NIV Bibles. But as I said at the beginning, it's not because that's the only good or accurate translation of the Bible. There are others. And I'll talk about what some of those others are. So does it matter? Yeah. It matters that you have one that's good. Not all of them are equally good. And then practically it matters, just so we can follow along together as best we as best we can. And so No, there is no such thing as that. There is no such thing as a different NIV from a different publisher. And I thought that's what you were going to ask about because... That's what I was asking. Well, there's people making money off of this, okay? So Zondervan owns the owns the publishing rights to the New International Version. So ain't nobody else doing another NIV. Otherwise, they're getting sued by Zondervan. So there's only one NIV, and, and Zondervan owns it. Well, I think what you might be mentioning is the NIV does have different versions. There's the NIV 84. Well, I don't know. I don't know if you knew that. If you knew that, I'm very impressed. And, and Tim, I'm very impressed. But There's just a few slight wording differences. Well, there are. Uh, they just came out. The NIV just updated the NIV because their last version was in 84, as Tim pointed out. And so over, you know, it's almost 25, over 25 years, then language changes a little bit. So they updated it. So the one that is current, but the only one you can buy, you can't buy a 1984. Zondervan doesn't publish a 1984. You can't buy one. You can buy a used one. These are collector's items now. I have one. In my, I'm going to keep it. I'm going to sell it for a lot of money. When it's but no, you can only buy a 2011 NIV right now because that's the latest. So there are, those are different, but they're only different in that they're updated from 25 years ago to now. All right. Thank you all.